0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark. I'm Umar Pagan, and Pagan. Joining me today is a voice you may recognize. <laughs> Welcome back, Azura Rahman. <laughs>
1: Maybe not quite recognized since you know I'm having a cold and you know it sounds like there's a frog in my throat but yes it's so nice to be back in the studios I got your I got the sexy version <laughs> Yes
0: if you think, like, you know, this sounds sexy, yes, you, you definitely did. If I think pneumonia induced voice sounds sexy, <laughs> then if that's whatever your rocks thing, whatever rocks your boat, whatever if that's rocks your, your thing. boat. So, uh, we're going to be talking today about um, A.A. Gill, who passed away a couple of years ago now. It was December 2016, and both Azura and I are huge fans of his writing. And we were talking about we were talking about doing a show about him for the longest time. And then last week, you picked up the best of his writing, and you messaged me, and you were like, oh, my God, this is wonderful. It makes me feel so happy. And I was like, come on, let's finally do this show. Uh, so if you don't know, A.A. A. Gill was a British writer, critic, food and travel. Um, he wrote for Vanity Fair, GQ, Esquire, all the greats. And uh, he passed away in December 2016, a very, very young age of 62 years old. Yes.
1: Um, he died of cancer, as a matter of fact. And I think famously, um, you mentioned all these great publications, but I guess one that's really... Attached to him is the Sunday Times, because he Correct. wrote a weekly um, restaurant column. You know, he used to review restaurants for a living, amongst other things. He used to
0: court a lot of controversy as a restaurant of course. clinic. But that's we'll what get he was known before We'll get to that.
1: But um, he, he found out that he had cancer in the summer of 2016. And um, unfortunately, it progressed very quickly. And before the year ended, um, uh, he passed away. And I think... If you don't know of A.A. Gill, or even if you didn't read um, his articles, you know, in the Sunday Times religiously because of the paywall, I know, I know the paywall. The paywall killed <laughs> a lot of things. Yeah, and, um, but um, I think everybody was touched by his passing simply for the um, for the fact that he wrote his 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 very last column for the Sunday Times appeared the day after he died. That's right. And um, that's probably something that we want to talk about as well, and um, and uh, the passing. That was recorded in such a manner, I suppose, and that's and that's A. A. Gill for you. It's um, it's not so much about how he writes, um, or the subject that he writes, but I think he's such a prolific writer and so good at it in the sense that he brings up the age-old, how shall I say, purpose of writing. Yeah, in the sense of. Transporting you to another place and evoking feelings in you, um, he wasn't, and, and you know without really imposing or you know pulling at your heartstrings in 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 a very manipulative manner, he makes you feel what you should feel should you be where he is, and that really struck me in his writings um, about the refugee crisis, for example, and a lot of the other things that he's written about, um, which has been. Very conveniently transcribed into this volume called *The Best of A. A. Gale, which was published um, uh, sometime last year.
0: We will talk a little bit about. The style of writing, because, you know, you said about how he writes. I mean, I I find that really, really fascinating because A.A. Gill is the kind of person who writes in a way I imagine he speaks. Yes. Right? I've never met the man. Uh, I I think I've seen some interviews with him on YouTube. He
1: has a funny speaking voice. He does. He does.
0: does. (laughs) But he writes in that way in the sense that it's incredibly conversational. And... And, and, and as a columnist, as a writer, it's incredibly easy to sink your teeth into. He also asks really obvious yet pertinent questions in all of his pieces. And it's really annoying, especially if you're a wannabe writer like myself, and you see that and you're just like, yes, it's so obvious. And yet the exposition that follows from that question is so brilliant and insightful. And that's something you can always count on him to provide. Uh, we're both reading different books, by the way. I mean, you're reading the best of A.A. Gail. I'm reading a collection of his um, travel writings. Um, And and the collection is interesting because it begins so obviously, it begins with the question of why travel, right? And he asks that question and then he breaks it down and he challenges every one of your preconceived notions, of why you travel. Like he he just goes, yeah, okay, well, some people say travel to escape, but escape from what? And then he he gives you a great example of do you think escapism is an easy thing? Well, how did checking into an international airport, a long-haul flight, checking out of a third world international airport twice, there and back, changing money, dealing with people who are a thousand times poorer than you in a foreign language without being rude or patronizing, not being able to drink the water or (laughs) eat the vegetables, having to take malaria pills, cholera, yellow fever and meningitis and polio injections. How did all that ever get to to be the raw ingredients for just chilling out. And it's such... It's just so simple and basic, and yet you go, yeah. You know that quote that you
1: just mentioned? It does make him sound like a Typical crotchety, grumpy old man. But he's not. But he's not. No. He isn't. Um, and that was what I found most surprising about him because um, my exposure to AA Gill started off with reading the Sunday papers, you know, when I was living in London um, uh, on a weekly basis. And he just had one of those columns that would be the first thing that you turn to. And you know the English papers are famous for the supplements, and the Sunday Times is one of the one of the, some of the best out there, it's, right? It's fat and thick and, and full of stuff. Yes, exactly. You just want to you know get your teeth into that first thing on Sunday morning. And um, his restaurant columns are famous for not writing much about food. He'll be Correct. right. He, I mean, he'll start off talking about I don't know about sending his daughter to school or talking about, I don't know, the weather, or, you know, whatever it is, politics. And then there'll be one paragraph and saying, you know, whether the food was good or not, you know. And that's, that's his style of writing. And some people liked it, some people hated it, but I just loved him for his prose. and um, And I mentioned that crotchety aspect of him, because you... You would expect a restaurant critic to be of that sort, you know. I mean, come on, you you're writing critical pieces on in offensive meals. That's what you do, right? And and you think it comes from a very lofty place, uh, you know, sitting up there saying that you know that the, the fish was overdone or you know <laughs> that I had to send back the sausages because they're not to my
0: liking, that right. kind of
1: thing, and um, be a beast about it. As a matter of fact, right? But. There is a lot of humanity
0: to him. There's, yeah, there's a lot of heart in all of yes, his pieces. Yes,
1: and I, I I really sense that when I read other piece other pieces that he's written, yeah. and and I, and and I think that's where my feeling as a reader has been because um, obviously I haven't read enough of his pieces. But then when when he talks about travel, for example, yes, he'll talk about the mundane tedium of checking in and out of airports, but how he views certain places with such fresh eyes.
0: Yeah. He used to go back to Africa every year. He yes. was absolutely in love with Africa. Oh, yes. And some of his writings in Africa, I really, really enjoy because it isn't, I mean... It isn't patronizing. It isn't patronizing, but he's also very well aware of the fact that he's a British white guy mm-hmm. going to Africa and writing about it, right? And all the colonial hang-ups that come along with that. Exactly. He's incredibly honest about that. and And I think that's why a lot of people actually... Disliked him because he's one of these people, like we said earlier, who kind of courted controversy. But I don't think he di- he ever did it for the sake of it. I think it was just who he was, and I think that's an interesting person to be in 2018. Unfortunately, he's she's not around anymore, but not, yes, but, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Someone or in the 21st century,
1: yes, and and I think the main thing about him as a, as a writer is that he is very conversational, like you like you mentioned. And it's a conversation that you want to get into because it's very engaging, it's very intelligent, and it's very insightful at the same time. And, you know, there have been many moments where where I have laughed out loud at his um, pieces of writing, and there have been many moments when I read this book where I had to shut the book, put it aside, and have a good cry. Right, yeah. And, um, and like I said, it's not meant to be emotionally manipulative, but... He has a lot of empathy behind
0: him. He does.
1: And I think as a writer, that's a great gift because, you know, you are really drawing in the reader into your world, into your text and, and transporting them from wherever that they are.
0: Also, in the world we live in right now, a lot of our most private thoughts, we choose to keep private because of the reaction we may get to it. If we broadcast those thoughts, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or on the radio, or if you write a piece about it, uh, because of the knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people may have, it's no longer a conversation, right? It becomes a form of epistemic violence. Everyone kind of just shouts you down. He was never afraid of that. And he actually put out these thoughts, for better or for worse, however un they may be, at least to kickstart a conversation about something. But that being said... People still kind of admired his writing. I think Lynn Barber wrote when he died, Gil is a wit and a charmer. Even when he's wrong, he's superbly full of himself. You know,
1: <laughs> he's just one of those characters that you may find or come across uh, in your life Um he is a cad, you know? He's
0: Christopher Hitchens
1: esque. Well, I, I mean, Christopher Hitchens, I think it's that is, I mean, I'll draw lines in the sand, and that line has been drawn. Christopher Hitchens is just, he's just full of hate. <laughs> Whereas AA Gill, I mean I mean I love Hitchin. No, come on, Omar. That says a lot about you. No. I know he's, He wrote for the Daily Mail. He
0: did write for the Daily Mail, but yet again I was a great admirer of his prose and his argumentative okay. style when yeah. he was writing. And half like the saying that
1: you like Woody Allen Roman Polanski, but I'll leave you to it. Whoa. But um you know um, it's easy to write him off as a controversial wit. Yes. You know, um, and uh, as a guy who's great with his words, but, you know, nothing much else. It's just like tin kosong, you know, you've not much thought, but then you just, you know, create great prose. But um, I think he is essentially someone who is out to entertain. And uh, he entertains, um, but is truthful to his entertainment. Um, I think one of the things that he wrote that I really got uh, amused by, and he's a very sound bitey guy, right? Yes, totally. He's the kind of person that, you know, you quote over you know, the breakfast, oh my God, can you imagine what A.A. Gill wrote? Uh, one of my favourite parts um, in this book, and this book, The Best of A. a. Gill, has conveniently been cut up into different uh, parts, uh, sorry, different themes. Mm-hmm. Um, of Food, uh, being away, that's what he called, uh, life, and also um, TV. And um, there's this particular essay on starbucks (laughs) and um and of course he was very disdainful of american coffee and um i'm not quite a big fan of starbucks myself i mean i'm sure a lot of people are but um one of the things that he said about his first encounter with starbucks um was when he ordered a cappuccino and if i can just read out this 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 um, um passage where he says An hour and a half later, I was presented with a mug. A mug. One of those American mugs where the lip is so thick you have to be an American or able to disengage your jaw like a python to fit it in your mouth. It contained a semi-permeable white mousse, the sort of stuff they used to drown teenagers in Ibiza (laughs) or pump into cavity walls. I dumped in two spoonfuls of sugar. It rejected them. Then, using both hands, I took a sip, then a gulp, then chewed. I had the momentary sense of drowning in snowman's poo. (laughs) Then after a long moment, a tepid sludge rose from the deep. How can anyone sell this stuff? How can anyone buy this twice? And this was only a small one. I slumped into a seat. And I just just burst out laughing, just reading that, you know. I mean, the amount of people he's managed to um, insult insult within those two sentences as well.
0: But... And and, and and Snowman's, poo snowman's is just pool. Snowman's pool a great image.
1: Oh you know Snowman's pool on top of a cappuccino. He's right though. Why have I never thought of that? You know, <laughs> I'll be using that from now on right and and this is the kind of gift that he has and it really is a gift uma because he is famously dyslexic and he had a lot of problems um with school as mm-hmm. a lot of um dyslexics do especially at the time that he was raised he was born in 1954 and um and was you know you were written off as being, as being stupid. stupid sorry to say and to come that far to be a great writer uh, it
0: truly is a gift i was so enthralled by the his his travel writing. I've always been enthralled by his travel writing because, like you said earlier, it addresses the mundane, but it actually makes you re-look at the mundane. And also it makes you question your purpose for travel. And I think that's something that I've stopped thinking about because I too, you have a busy, hectic schedule. And a lot of the time you think travel is escape and you want to go away from your life and chill out somewhere and do nothing. And yet that completely undermines anything you actually can gain from travel. But with that being said, he also writes about that idea of travel making you a better person. Mm. And there's a great quote where he goes, travel doesn't necessarily make you wiser, nicer, better tempered, more open or calmer. If you travel a lot, it makes you well-traveled. And that's something. So I just love that because he completely undermines everything you believe travel should do. And then at the end, he just goes, that's something, too. Yeah. You know, and that's important as well, being well-traveled, even though all of that nonsense you tell other people when they say, should I travel? Should I take a gap year? You know, it's irrelevant. Right. It's great. I mean, even the idea of escape, um, he goes, "Uh, traveling is time out between two dimly cliched places. A here that is fraught, hectic, relentless and infuriating and a there that is peaceful, comforting, effortless and undemanding. But if that really describes your home and your holidays, then you're living your life the wrong way around. Oh, touche. Insane, right? Right. I
1: mean, You just pack up and go home in that sense. Or not go home, maybe, in that sense. And You have three children. You have to go
0: home. You have to go home, Ezra. I know. That. You
1: can't stay here. The yet. police will be after me. Right. But um, some of the pieces in this book also touch on travel. Right. And, um, and it's not just about him traveling, as a matter of fact. There was one particular one, one particular um, essay on airports, and it's not how you think it would be. It starts off um, kicking off something like the opening scene of Love, actually talking about people <laughs> arriving and departing. And I was thinking, when was this piece written? Did he just like? Rip so, off Richard Curtis. Exactly, rip off Richard Curtis. But but you know his pieces tend to take a, a little bit of a turn. And in this particular book, um, in the sorry, in this particular passage, he goes on to say about waiting for his grown up daughter. Um, who's nineteen years old and coming back from her gap year? Now, the gap year, in case you're not familiar, it's a very much an English thing, Anglo-Saxon thing, where after you finish, you know, your secondary school, before you go to university, you take a year off and you travel and go learn about and the, world. the world. You know, I guess go to a kibbutz in Israel or you know, build some schools in Africa. You know, and and do it's some... a big deal because you it know when you deal. come to
0: that first year in university and everyone's like, oh, you took a gap
1: year. Yes, you've, you're you supposed to be that much more enriched and that much more enlightened. Or maybe you just spend six months in and you know. Getting... And let me tell you,
0: the year kids are the most obnoxious kids there are.
1: And that was his daughter, who had gone off for six months, you know, doing you know moon parties in, in Kupang and that kind of thing. And, you know, he was slightly worried. And the most tender passage... Um, one of the most tender passages that uh, was in this book was about while he was waiting for his daughter Flora, and that was her name, and that is her name um, at arrivals and he He is someone who 's well traveled and he knows all the fears that comes along with of um, of travelling and the anticipation. And he was slightly put out by the fact that the daughter just kind of shrugged it off. You know, yeah, fine, I've got my jabs, I've got my shots. you know, i would be fine. You know, I'm not going to fall for the uh, next backpacker who asked me to go off to, <laughs> jet off to Philippines or whatever it is. And um, so he said, while I waited for Flora, I was surprised by the depth and the sharpness of my own anticipation and of how much I'd missed her. Um, and then he went on to say, um, when he had also... Um, observed a family who was waiting for someone and that family was made up of a mother and a father and their children. And they were obviously waiting for someone who lives abroad. And it became clear it was someone who came back to the country because someone had passed away. Right. And that was already a very touching moment. And then suddenly before he knew it, he saw his daughter hanging out at the back. And, um, this is what he said. Um, as they, meaning the family, moved slowly towards the exit, there was a shrill call of Daddy! And Flora, in crumpled, brightly tie-dyed cotton with matted hair and barnacle with bangles, dropped her bag and ran to the barrier, a grin like a sickle moon, relieved, I think, to find that I was still here with the living and that finally there was someone else to carry her rucksack. <laughs> oh, come on. Daddy, daughter, daddy carrying my baggage, you know, I mean, someone else would be, oh, goodness. And uh, someone who has children for someone like me, you know, it's just, oh oh, oh, oh my, that was heart-wrenching stuff. And yet so beautiful beautiful, beautiful. so tender. And funny.
0: Yes. And funny as well. And funny. right? And funny. He cuts through the emotion with that line about the rucksack and yet it still moves you. He had an interesting quote about death, uh, which I came across. And he says, I realize I don't have a bucket list. I don't feel I've been cheated of anything. I'd like to have gone to Timbuktu, and there are places I will be sorry not to see again. But actually, because of the nature of my life and the nature of what happened to me in my early life, my addiction, I know I have been very lucky. I think that's an interesting quote because, you know, apart from all his skill and talent and all of that stuff, he still doesn't discount luck. There's a line in one of his travel books when he talks about, the reasons why young people travel and old people travel. And he says, you know, in brackets, if you are above 60 and you haven't seen the Taj Mahal, stop whatever you're doing and go check it out right now. You know, and so it's these little things that, you, these little pieces of advice that you take from him uh, because he seems so wise in mm. what he's telling you. And he doesn't, he doesn't come at it from an elitist point of view. He comes at it uh, from a very... He he is you. He's like you. Yet he's not cynical. Exactly. For
1: having gone through what he's gone, um, you know, like I said, addiction and he had uh, dyslexia as a child. Um, his brother went missing and mm. is still missing to the, to the day that he died. You know, he just basically wrote a note to his brother saying, I'm going to go off for a bit. Don't look for me. And that's something that he had to carry with. And you mentioned Ataj Mahal. And there was a passage in this book as well where he wrote about, you know, going to India. And forget about, he said, going to India is the worst thing ever. Do not tell anyone that you're going to India because suddenly you'll be getting 20 pages of advice from all of your friends Correct. and their aunties and your dogs and their dogs, doctors, whatever, say, oh, you got to do this and you got to do that. And if you do not see this, you're not going to see the real India. <laughs> and you know. And also he goes on to say that people will, will also come up to you, oh, what are you going to do about the poverty? How are you going to deal with the poverty? I love India, but I can't deal the poverty. And he says like, well... You know, uh, yeah. I don't have to deal with the poverty. They have to deal with the poverty. That's the thing. you know, I swear
0: to God, I've given you that same advice as well.
1: right. <laughs> and he mentioned The Taj Mahal yeah, in that piece of writing because, you know, it's easy to be cynical. In this day and age of Instagram traveling, correct, everybody wants to put on the most unique, most wonderful vantage point. You know, they wanna do, they wanna one up each other in terms of the images that they've captured during their travels. Can you please get the poverty out of the picture? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I know I want to do Princess Diana from Taj Mahal and better. But he says whatever it is, no matter how much people say that you know Taj Mahal how boring, should you go to this fort and that fort. Got to make you know, you got to be different. Please see the Taj Mahal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because it lives up to to its expectation Correct. and more. And I love the fact that someone who's so well traveled, who knows so many, you know, for want of a better word, exotic locations inside and out, he's still not cynical about, you know, something that's so iconic and so popular. Popular like the Taj Mahal.
0: For me, one of the interesting things about um AA Gill, much like say Alistair Cook and um Christopher Hitchens and those kind of people is that they had this enduring fascination with America. And they wrote, and and I always like when British people write about America. And why is that so? I I don't know. I think that outsider perspective is really important because Americans are so up up themselves. They're very insular. Yeah. And there are two kinds of American writers who write about themselves. Right? There is the super cynical, uh, weird garbage and then there is the American exceptionalism, you know, uh, and, and, and those are the kind of people that often write about the state. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, when the Britishers do it, Alistair Cook for me is is one of the greatest commentators of America that ever lived, right? And his BBC radio program was phenomenal, Letter, uh, letter from America. And and I think A.A. Gill did the same. I, there was a collection of writing, uh, uh, there's a book out where he writes, it's all his American pieces. and And for me, Um, There's a great line about American exceptionalism and he says, America didn't bypass or escape civilization. It did something far more profound, far cleverer. It simply changed what civilization could be. And I think that outside perspective allows you some really fascinating insight when you go to this land, which is essentially the same people. Yeah. But they just kind of evolved differently over the last three hundred years. Common
1: language, but yeah. You know yeah. I think it's um, it's an anthropological point of view, isn't it? Yes. It's that curiosity. Yes. And that is another gift of a writer of like A.A. Gill. The lack of cynicism and that curiosity of wanting to know why things are the way they are, even for something like you know America and Americans, something that you think that everyone has everyone has an opinion on of course, because and it's they're been so, so well documented, exactly right? yeah. you know you 're on TV you're on your movies, you're on your phone, you're everywhere, and you think you know everything about them, but still there's that curiosity to find out a bit more to to just go beyond that you know the the, the layer that you are presented with. And I think that is a great gift for any writer to be curious.
0: So Azura, do you have a recommendation? I mean, we've been talking about A.A. Gill for a long time now. Do you have a recommendation where anyone can start? I've got one, but you go first.
1: Okay, I think... Okay, if I can say about this book, The Best of A.A. Gill... um, it starts off with his food writing, which is very arch, which is very funny, very <laughs> laconic. Um, yeah. get a lot of giggles out of you. It does, certainly out of uh, did get a lot of giggles out of me. Um, but then it moved on to another um whole chapter called um away. Basically, it's um his writings when he was abroad, and it's not and it ranges from. Him writing about um, the refugee crisis in Sudan, mm-hmm. very moving stuff, to his final trip, which you don't realize until later when you see it was summer 2016, um, to Africa for a safari with his kids. Now, it, so it starts off being very funny and jolly and oh my God, yeah, <laughs> you know, that food sucks and ha ha ha, you know, these Michelin shirts, what do they know? And it moves on to being very, very introspective and very... Very um downbeat, especially some of his um uh, his passages on the refugee crisis, um in in Europe, you know, with the Syrian um, refugees uh, moving in. One particular essay, I think, um, I think let's move to the the meaningful stuff, right? I think this is one where you might change people's perspectives. Is simply titled Lampedusa. Lampedusa is a um, is an island in Italy. Yeah. Um, and it was a point of where a lot of um, um, refugees who have come in by boat, coming in from Tripoli, and he was there to observe how the islanders had actually reacted to the boatloads of refugees having coming in. And it's a it's a kind of, it's, it's it's a destination where they've always had refugees coming in simply because of, of their ge- geographical destination. Now, um, this is the. Uh, and he reports. He reports what he's seen. He speaks to people and and he's, he was very kind when it came to describing the people of Lampedusa and how generous they were towards the refugees. And he said, and this is what really struck me in one of his in his penultimate passage in this particular art, article, and this should change how you view the refugee crisis it certainly did for, um, for me. The reason the Lampedusans are kind and good to these desperate visitors is because they can be. They've met them and they see them. The reason we can talk about them as a problem, a plague on our borders, is because we don't see them. If any of these refugees knocked on any of our front doors and asked for help, we would give it. We would insist that they be protected and offered a chance to be doctors and civil engineers, nurses, and journalists. We would do it because we are also good and kind. It is not by looking, by turning our backs, that we can sail away and think this is sad but it 's not our sadness, yeah, and you know, and that was um, and he appeals to the milk of your human kindness as well it 's not about it 's not preaching
0: yeah it 's not I am kinder than you, I 'm better no, than you right we
1: are all in this together, and yeah. i 'm not going to read the last passage because the ultimate last passage is probably the most gut wrenching passage that you could read when it comes to the refugee crisis. Um, it speaks about you know, a boat um, um, which also had the body of a young woman uh, um, who was pregnant. Please seek out this article, Lampedusa, Lampedusa, um, in this book. I think it's available online as well. And if you do not shed a tear, you are not human.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, and this this is the other thing great great about A.A. which brings me to the kind of uh, little passage that I want to end on, uh, which was what he's saying is something we all know. And something we all believe in already, but yet he phrases it in such an eloquent and beautiful manner that it makes you pay attention. Um, and the last thing that I wanted to read, because there's something that A.A. Gill has written about everything, right? Being a columnist for The Times means he has such a wide scope. He's written about America, he's written about Doctor Who, he's written about television, all yes. kinds of stuff. Children's television, even. Children's TV. And this one is about Britain remaining in the EU. And what he says isn't anything novel, but the way he says it is brilliant. We all know what getting our country back means. It's snorting a line of the most pernicious and debilitating little English drug, nostalgia. Hmm. The warm, crumbly, honey-colored collective yesterday, with its fond belief that everything was better back then, that Britain, in brackets, England really, is a worse place now than it was at some foggy point in the past where we achieved peak blighty. Wow. Great, right? Great. Yeah. Great stuff. Go seek out A.A. Gill. I think Azura and I have given you tons to chew over. Uh, the book I'm reading is called A.A. Gill Here and There. Azura is reading the best of A.A. Gill. I mean, it's, it's a great way to kind of sink into his stuff.
1: Yes. And, and, and if I can just add on one more thing about this book, if, if you don't want to go through the kind of gut wrenching up and down roller coaster like I did, but I think. But you do. I know, but, you know, I, I need a bit of sunshine at the moment after reading about this refugee crisis, Is maybe pick and choose from the actual yes. book. I mean, obviously, it's, it's all you know episodic, so you do not have to read it
0: from, from beginning the very beginning to, to the end. Yeah. Yes. All right, do that. Uh, Azura, thank you so much. Thank uh, you for having we'll me. We'll be seeing a lot more of you. You're going to join me on a monthly basis. Yes. I, I'm, I'm seeing it on air now so that you can't back out. <laughs> I have out. no choice. And I have, have no, no choice. choice. It's on record. Uh, you've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast.